Hello and welcome to another episode of You in the Ring, your campus news show. I'm your host, Hugo Wong. Today on the show, the recent passing of Dr. Marshall Agay, a professor in the Department of Mathematics and Statistics, has been a shock to many in the department. We'll have a little more on that. UVic has announced a interim sexualized violence policy, which will be subject to public consultation over the coming weeks. This comes after multiple stories from survivors about how existing policies and procedures surrounding sexualized violence has failed them. Miles Sauer, editor-in-chief at The Marlet, will give us a preview on a story that will be published in this Thursday's paper. Uh, and Jennifer Landry, the author of that piece, will be joining us as well. Evix Phoenix Theatre is celebrating its 50th anniversary this winter, uh, and we'll have a little bit more on that. But first, we are introducing a new segment this week, uh, produced by Miyoko Kaube. She is a French citizen who's been discovering Canada for the past six months, and she recently decided to settle down in Victoria. She will come up every week with a piece based on uh, a subject that's close to her interests, one of which is food. So much is going on around the subject of food on campus uh, that she'll make it a recurrent topic of hers. Today, she's finding out about the informed dining program posted in each cafeteria. taste the red wine distinctly but you can tell it's there and it's got that extra sort of um, contrast to it um, the carrots too I don't want to divert from the cheek too much mm-hmm. yeah. carrots become really unctuous mm-hmm. when you cook mm-hmm. them with beef there's something really I guess it's the sugars or something, but they just become meaty and... Every bite's a little bit not different, but I get to know it a little better each time, I think. Um, yeah, it's definitely better every time. Hi, this is Miyoko speaking, and these were my friends Emily and Ryan, who were kind enough to taste my Boeuf Bourguignon last night. I come from France and this will surprise you. I love to talk about food, think about food, cook food and eat it. For those of you who are interested, I make my boeuf bourguignon with beef cheeks. I soak it overnight in red wine with onions, carrots and herbs. And then I let it simmer in the morning for at least two and a half hours before letting it rest on the stove all day. Then I heat it up again for some time before serving it with some mushrooms and bacon. It's like bringing tears to my eyes, how delicious it is. Thank you, Emily. Food is such an easy way to be happy, right? But sometimes it seems to me that food can be turned into a real math problem. I was casually making some research on UVic's website the other day about what was going on around the subject of food on campus. And pretty quickly, a program called Informed Dining really caught my attention. It's a program which, quote, aims to help customers make informed menu choices with a focus on calories and sodium. You can click on the different places where to eat on campus like Village Green or Bibliocafé, 
and then a PDF file will open with a table of all the nutritional content of each item sold on the menu. I opened the Bibliocafe table of nutritional facts and checked the veggie and hummus wrap which I had for lunch once. So I could read serving size 170 grams, calories 300, total fat 5 grams, saturated fat 0.5 grams, trans fat 0 gram, cholesterol 0 milligrams, sodium 630 milliliters, and then we have the carbohydrates, the dietary fibers, the sugars, the protein, the vitamin A, vitamin C, calcium, and finally iron. I hope I didn't lose you yet, because I'm totally lost in these numbers. And if you could still be on the boat with me, uh, that would be wonderful. <laughs> What's happening for me is that after reading this, I don't feel like I've learned anything about what I've ate. I know generally what cholesterol is, but I still couldn't give you a definition of it or trans fat or vitamin A and what they do when processed in a human body. So I went to Village Green's cafeteria and asked the students who were eating in the dining room there if they found this table of information useful. Um, I personally haven't checked it out, but I'm sure it would be helpful to some people. Um, I definitely know that's helpful for lots of people. However, I don't kind of check what I'm eating, so... Not for me, but I know it is helpful, yeah. Mm, I don't really look at nutrition facts, like, in general, but um, when they're there, like, sometimes it, like, helps me choose what to eat if I look at it, like, snacks and stuff. Um, I guess I would look at, like, the calories. If it's a lot, then I'd be like, do I want to eat this? Do I? I would look at the vitamin and calorie content and fat, and sodium is a really big problem in Canada, too, so I'd look at that. Often, yeah, look at that and see what's how many calories and uh, sh how much sugar is in the stuff. Um, I've just grown up doing that, I guess. My parents do it. We just watch it. So, Yeah, I'm looking at protein levels, sugar levels, um, sodium, um, and tracking calories and carbs and fats and everything. I, I play a lot of sports teams and I played competitively, so I need to watch what I'm putting into my body. I used to track my calories. Uh, I was trying to hit a certain amount of calories because I wanted to gain some mass. Uh, I tried using it for a week, looking at the menu every time before getting food. Sometimes I get it in between classes and stuff, but then it just got too hectic planning things, so now I just eat whatever. I love looking at like nutrition facts just because I'm like fascinated as to like what goes into food, especially if it's processed. But like, I think a lot of people, including myself, don't really know like what their body needs and like what it necessarily means when it's like going into your body. And if you have this like conception that sugar is bad for you and you're avoiding sugar you might be like ingesting products with artificial sugars or like a chemical additive to replace sugar that's not good for you. A lot of students have allergy to certain products. A um, lot of people like after workout they want to ha have um, protein and stuff so so they ask us what what's in the food so we, we refer to the, um, the booklet if you talk about pakoras or samosa or chickpea curry, how that was made, what was in, what's in there, it's pretty good if you can see what you're putting in your body. <laughs> you just heard 10 students and a cashier, and I can't generalize from such a small sample of people, but I have to say that I was pretty impressed by how knowledgeable about nutritional facts the majority of the students were. When I was in high school in France, so that would have been until 97, 
I never had a conversation with anybody about how they exactly knew what these nutritional facts meant. I only saw magazines addressed to women constantly warning about amounts of calories, whatever that meant, and making dietary suggestions if anyone had the intention to wear a bikini on the beach that summer or get their bodies back after a Christmas vacation. So from what these students and this cashier said, a lot of people do ask questions about nutritional facts. I still feel uneasy with the fact that so many people would seek an outside information to decide what they need to eat. Aren't we supposed to naturally know what our bodies need to be healthy and balanced, even when we are practicing sports like crazy? Don't you ever feel like eating specific foods sometimes, like it would feel really good to have this particular protein or that you're actually craving veggies and that you won't feel satisfied until you have some? Don't you also ever feel like what you've just had doesn't feel right, that it was too heavy or that it was not satisfying enough? Couldn't we just rely on these internal cues and be healthy? Yeah, I wonder... And I thought I would reach out to Nicole Fetterly, the dietitian of the campus, to see if she could enlighten me and contribute to this whole nutritional content information conversation. So Informed Dining was a program started by the BC government's Healthy Families um, initiative. And the idea was to have restaurants and food service operations providing nutrition information, because right now... The Canadian Federal Inspection Agency and Health Canada only require nutrition information on grocery shelf products, not food service products or restaurant foods. Um, and so Informed Dining is a voluntary program where restaurants um, basically convey their nutrition information and Informed Dining supports them by promoting that they're doing this voluntary um program on their website and they provide marketing materials and they try and have a standardized approach to how that nutrition information is conveyed. So UVic was actually the very first campus to uh, participate in this and provide all of the nutrition facts for their products. That started a couple years ago. I think calories obviously trying to address you know, excess calorie consumption leading to our overweight and obesity epidemic. Um, I think people aren't really aware sometimes of the calories in in something like a dessert that they're having after a meal and so sometimes finding out that you know you're having a 500 calorie muffin or 500 calorie cookie or or bar um, after you've already had a thousand calorie meal and that means that you've had enough calories for your entire day could be useful information um, but only so much if you're eating out all the time And generally, the message is that you shouldn't be eating out all the time. You should be mostly cooking at home. And if you're cooking at home 80% of the time and you're cooking from scratch and, you know, simple foods, close to nature foods, not packaged and processed foods, then when you do eat out occasionally, it shouldn't really matter what kind of calories are in your food. The exception to this being our students who are living in residence because they have to eat from our um, dining halls every single day and every single meal period. They don't get to cook in their own um, apartments. And so they do need that information maybe more than someone who's just occasionally choosing a lunch out. Definitely the students who are reading the information are the ones who are probably already quite aware and educated about it. And I don't know that we're necessarily reaching the students who probably need that information. Um, if they're not interested, they're not looking for it. And um, so I would like to 
you know, look at different formats for how we convey information. Um, maybe we have like a, a dietitian's top choice kind of symbol on certain foods in the, in the restaurants and in the cafeterias um, so that people know, oh, this is one that our dietitian has said has, you know, lower calories or less sodium or, you know, more fiber or more protein and some of those kind of things. She's got some good points. I could see now how providing information on the ingredient content of the plates or a dietitian's top choice could be helpful indeed. We can't just expect students who are often freshly learning to live a life on their own with the additional stress of the academic life to know exactly what they need to eat. But I'm still wondering if referring students and other customers to numbers and words like trans fat, proteins and calories is more helpful to people than guiding them on how to tune in and trust their own body signals. I would be very interested in learning exactly how, in our Western societies, we went from eating food without relying on numbers and be fine at some point, to eating food based on intellectual cues. I was happy to see that even though the majority of the 10 students and the cashier brought up the tendency or the need for nutritional information guidance, they still had made their meal choices for different reasons. I had the vegan vegetable soup. It was this and like chili and between that and like cream of broccoli and I was like, this one looks good. I kind of had a craving <laughs> and wanted noodles, so I walked in and it's nice that there's a noodle floor. I ordered a curry special today. I'm vegetarian, so um, yeah, it's really good. It reminds me of home. <laughs> um, I chose what I like to eat and tried to get something relatively healthy. I love VG's because it actually tastes like real food. I've had it before and really like it. Yeah, I make my food choices on what I like to taste and then what makes me feel good during the day. And then if I notice I'm, like, I make a dietary change and I start feeling bad, then I just change back kind of thing. And you, what do you think about all this? What is your own experience with food? I would really love for you to join this conversation with me. And if not, well, I would be happy if this will have at least made your mouth water a little bit. Yeah, it's so good, and the beef is just so luscious. It's like, like when you walk into a, a dell in the forest, and there's a river, but it's sort of collected into a deep pool, and your heart breaks because it's so beautiful, and you, it's just all you can't even handle it. How beautiful it is. That's the feeling that it gives me. <laughs> I can't top that. <laughs> Delving. That segment was produced by Miyoko Kobe. If you have food-related stories, or any stories, in fact, that you think she should investigate, email miyokoradio at gmail.com or our producer at spokenword at cfuv.ca. Right now, Miyoko is looking for stories about weird housing situations and rental stories. So if you have some, send them our way. The UVix Phoenix Theater is celebrating its 50th anniversary this winter with a series of shows and events all through October and November. Adrian Holier-Hoke from the Department of Theater and Phoenix Theater joins us on the phone to tell us more. Good morning, Adrian. 
Oh, hi, Hugo. So there are a lot of events happening over the next little while, uh, so we'll get into it a piece at a time. First of all, tell us a little bit about the shows. Well, um, every fall we usually invite our alumni back to one alumni in the fall, and they do their show for a week and a half, and, and we get a chance to profile the, what our grads are doing out there in the world and, and uh, their successes, and also bring them back in to work with our students and have our students mentor with them. And it's it's kind of a lovely program, and so this year for our 50th, we decided to kind of blow it out and invite three different people for three different weeks um, and five different shows, and it's it's a lot going on, but uh, it's going to be really fun. So um, we've invited back to Charles Ross. He's one of our grads, and he's most known uh, for the one-man Star Wars trilogy that he does, a one-hour performance where he crams in, I guess it's episodes four, five, and six, and now that's what we call them, into one mm-hmm. hour, and he does all the sound effects and everything. He just magically transforms himself into every single character in the play. Um, he's going to do actually all three of what he kind of refers to as nerd trilogies, because so, he also does a one-man Lord of the Rings, and he does a new show called One Man Dark Knight, a Batman parody. And so he's our first guest, and he's basically each of those shows are only running for three days each, or three performances each. Mm-hmm. Um, the next alumni that's following him is T.J. Daw. T.J. Daw is like an icon of the fringe. Um, uh, he, he is both um, somebody who's toured around the world doing his one-man shows, and he's been written about extensively by like theater historians because he's really sort of mastered in, in a Canadian theater context that autobiographical sto- storytelling about uh, crazy stuff that happens in his life and the amazing observations he comes out of it. Uh, he's doing a play that was um, our very first spotlight on alumni in 2003. It's called The Slipknot. And the Slipknot tells the story of three really, really horrible jobs that he did and, mm-hmm. and the things that he learned from them. But, but he also told me last week, he said, yeah, it's his most produced play and his most um, published play, and uh, that play is now means he doesn't have to do horrible jobs anymore. Mm-hmm. And how long did that take in his career before he got there? Well, uh, this was he wrote it in 2001. He first performed it here in 2003. Mm-hmm. And uh, so since then, um, that's 13 years ago, it's, it's now the, his most produced play. Hmm. So he, he does um, spend his entire career working on theater performing doing lectures and workshops and uh, he's very well known he just actually was down he does his workshops about uh, playwriting workshops all Mm. over the world as well uh, the last uh, alumni coming is a Cirque du Soleil clown. Uh, Shannon Calcutt graduated um, from the department, and but has been in Vegas now for the last 10 years. And uh, she's actually a, a, a comedic coach with Cirque du Soleil for all of their resident shows. And she's the comedic director, uh, the co-comedic director for the show Zumanity um, that, that's been running in Vegas for 10 years. And so incredible credentials. Uh, she has a clown character that she, uh, so her alter ego, whose name is Izzy. Mm-hmm. And this is a, a play that she's written, a solo show for Izzy. And uh, Izzy's a, she's charming and radiant and funny, uh, but very eager for love and mm. slash desperate. And uh, <laughs> is on her first blind date. Okay. She does happen to show up in a wedding dress. Mm-hmm. So, uh, when I was reading through the biographies, Shannon's definitely definitely stood out. How did she get started with Cirque du Soleil? 
Actually, that's a good question. I'm not even sure. I know uh, that she has been clowning, and uh, she has done her educated across um, different different. She's done a master's in um, in in clowning, and um, oh. Sorry, the name is the school. The name is eluding me at the moment. Mm-hmm. Uh, a very famous clown school, and um, she's been out there working as a clown since she graduated mm-hmm. in the late nineties. Mm-hmm. And and for yourself, what's been what's it been like for you and the other staff of the Phoenix preparing for this kind of this like big event? Well, it's it's going to be a busy time. Uh, we we have. Sort of, they're all performing on the same stage, so as far as getting people this tech support so that they'll have different lighting and people, are, our students are run all the tech in the surroundings of each play. So uh, getting the, all of our students ready to, to participate and do something is quite, um, it's like a very uh, roadhouse atmosphere almost because it's going to be like somebody's in and then the next day does something different and next week it's somebody different. So that's a real training ground for our students to learn um, how that functions because normally here when we do a, one of our productions they've got um a good six to uh, six weeks of rehearsals to kind of get into what's mm-hmm. happening right so they're, they're, everybody's going to have to figure it out really quickly and uh and and get on get on board and so that's a really fun training opportunity for them mm-hmm. we've been planning our 50th anniversary um since last year this time and in fact someone like shannon calcutt who is um we had to book her before, while she was signing her contract, her annual contract with Cirque du Soleil, so wow. that she had time to come. So uh, that all these things, even Charles Ross, uh, was booked up years in advance. Mm-hmm. So uh, he's performed Lord of the Rings and Star Wars all over the world. He's performed Star Wars for George Lucas. <laughs> mm-hmm. um, he's performed Lord of the Rings for Sir Ian McKellen. So uh, what a surreal experience! Pardon? What a surreal experience that must have been. <laughs> Yes, mm-hmm. I can't even imagine. Mm-hmm. Uh, this um, this is in addition to the regular main stage season that you've got going on. Is that right? It is. Yeah. So um, we then go into our regular season um, in November, and uh, and what we're doing then is actually uh, Fran Gephardt, one of our instructors and a, and a d- director here at the department. Um, is directing one of her very favorite shows, Christopher Hampton's Les Liaisons Dangereuses. Mm-hmm. Many people remember the the show, the movie from the 1980s. Mm-hmm. Um, and I think the costumes that are being designed are going to be almost as fabulous. Mm-hmm. Um, it will be set in a period, um, a time period uh, for the late 1700s. So the costumes are going to be beautiful. Um, this is Fran's favorite show, and she just loves Christopher Hampton's text and language. It's very meaty. It's hard for students to get their words around, and and uh, she she likens it to Shakespeare with but in a contemporary language. Um, and so she's really excited to work with the students to to you know on on such a text that is really strong and really compelling. Um, so she's excited about that. She's been wanting to do this show for a while. Mm-hmm. Uh, now, I also understand there's a display of historical objects in the Phoenix that's happening uh, right now. Can you tell us a little bit about what's featured? So um, it'll be up during the festival. Uh, we have an exhibition about our history. We have pulled out some wonderful props from days gone by. Uh, in 1990, we performed a uh, Peter Pan, and we did a huge outdoor performance, if you can imagine, uh, mm. at on the on the waterways around the university faculty club. 
uh, you're, you know what I mean, when mm-hmm. you're out on the patio, and the audience who had dinner on the patio and then sat and watched this performance, and Peter Pan would swing over the water. Wow. And so we had a, a mechanical floating alleg- uh, uh, crocodile, sorry, head as it sort of chomped its way across the water. And we're going to pull him out and a few other fun things from our past that people will look at and go, I remember that. So, um, As well, the University Library and Archives is going to be doing an exhibition later on in October, October 24th to December 2nd, um, of posters from our past. Mm-hmm. And some of these posters are so, they're works of art in themselves. Um, they came from a time when we didn't have, you know, glossy printers at, at the ready all the time. Mm-hmm. And uh, many of them were hand silk screened and hand designed. Um, beautiful, beautiful objects. So I'm excited to see what the um, the archivist uh, curates over there for a collection of our posters from our past. Mm-hmm. Uh, now, the Phoenix is almost as old as the university itself. I think UVic just celebrated its 50th anniversary uh, mm-hmm. a, a few years ago. Uh, what sort of was the uh, walk us through the creation of the program and sort of those those early days? We owe a lot to uh, Roger Bishop, and uh, those people who are used to come to the Phoenix will recognize that name because we've named one of our theater spaces after him. Mm. Roger Bishop was the chair of the English department uh, when we were still um, uh, not quite a university, and um, sort of Victoria College, so to speak. And then um, he really thought that the English department needed to be expanded. He understood that theater in itself was more than just reading something on a page and studying Shakespeare written. He, he understood that it needed to be performed and it needed to be seen and we needed live audiences to really get the full um, compellingness of, of why we study drama. And so he advocated very early on from um, before we actually were named a university where it was all in the works. But So all of this was in in play, um, and the, the Department of Theatre came about uh, very shortly there afterwards, but mm-hmm. we really, at the time of the university, we did have a, a program within the English department. And so um, our first alumni graduated with a BFA, a Bachelor of Fine Arts, in 1970. But we do have alumni who have that English and theater major um, who graduated in 67 and, uh, and, and in those time periods. And uh, it, it, so it, it does go way back. Um, the early shows here were... Um, interesting collaborative affairs. They weren't mm-hmm. necessarily the students, only the students on stage. You saw faculty on stage. You saw faculty from across the university helping to build stages and sets and oh. costumes. Um, there was a uh, sort of a town and gown um, group that would actually work together with students and faculty and people from the community to regularly put on plays called the campus players. So it, there was some really collaborative beginnings mm-hmm. um, um, and uh, come around 1965 when they actually created a, a building called the, the Phoenix out of some of the military huts on the other side of campus. Um, that grew. That grew into a location where the students could then put on their put. We could work with the students to produce the plays as part of our education, which mm-hmm. is sort of what we continue to do now. Mm-hmm. Uh, we just in a different building, yeah. a very nice one mm-hmm. on the other side of campus. Yeah, yeah. And you're going to have uh, some of those alumni back for some events in November. Yeah, 
it's so fantastic. We've been gathering and re- communicating with generations, literally generations of students, uh, graduates. And um, uh, we have about 160 now signed up to return in November over the long weekend, uh, the 11th to the 13th. So if any alumni, if the uh, alumni are listening, um, please uh, get in touch. Um, we have set up a website called um, the Phoenix Theaters.ca, so Phoenix Theaters, plural, .ca, and then slash 50th, and there's information about the reunion weekend. Uh, we're going to just, we just really want to get everybody back together. Mm-hmm. Uh, we have people who graduated and they had children, and then their children came back to wow. <laughs> to do uh, degrees here. Um, so we've got lots of events, um, both for alumni and also their families over the weekend. And uh, we're going to do a fun run walk on the Sunday and. Uh, We've got actually about 75 people that are going to ring, do nice. do the chip trail on Sunday morning, which nice. is going to be great. Yeah, and if people... uh, we're looking forward to getting everybody back together. When I talk to alumni, I really hear from them that this is an important place where they discovered who they were as people and artists, and, and kind of really influenced the rest of their lives. And uh, and they made amazing friendships here that you know many people go on and work together with the people they they knew at university and and create continue to create projects with them and and TJ and uh uh Charlie and Shannon are are, are examples of that uh, just this summer TJ was down in Vegas doing one of his work writing workshops with Shannon's husband theater company so mm-hmm. they're still all connected it's quite sure. interesting so yeah. we're just going to put them in a big room and have a great big chin wag i think <laughs> and if people want to know more about those uh the dates for the uh alumni shows that are happening in october uh mm-hmm. where do they go uh yeah phoenix theaters.ca so again that's phoenix theaters with an s and .ca and uh, it'll lead you right to our whole program of plays for the year um again uh, uh, charles ross is really quite popular but um get in there he's only doing three performances of each of those shows so uh check out the dates for those specifically because he's literally doing one two three and then one two three and then one two three <laughs> kind of amazing we'll have to leave it there adrian thanks so much for joining us okay thanks Hiko. Adrian Holyhoek is from the UVic Department of Theatre and the Phoenix Theatre. And now to some sadder news. On October, or sorry, on September 20th, we reported that Marshall Aguay, a professor in the Department of Mathematics and Statistics, died after a short illness on September 14th. In a brief statement at the time from Rod Edwards, chair of the department, uh, he called Agay an excellent mathematician and a much-appreciated instructor who will be sorely missed by the math and stats department, his family, and his friends. Since then, a longer statement has been released by the university detailing his biography, his research, and the impact that he had on students and faculty at UVic and abroad. We're fortunate to have Professor Reinhard Ilner, an emeritus professor in the math and stats department, joining us in studio to tell us more about him. Dr. Ilner, hello. Good morning. Uh, could you give us a, a sense of his background and, and what he was like as a person? Well, um, he was a really nice man, I would say. He brought sunshine and joy into the lives of all that had contact with him. He was also an excellent teacher, you know, very popular among his students, and he gave outstanding seminar talks. In fact, I remember very vividly when we first interviewed him for the job about 10 years ago, and he gave really this lecture of exceptional clarity. 
He was a native of Benin, a true African, right? Benin is a small country just west of Nigeria on the West African coast. And he also uh, got his undergraduate math education there and his first degree. After that, I think he went to Holland for a Mm -hmm. short period of time and then eventually to the Georgia Institute of Technology in the U.S., where he got his Ph.D. Uh, He had a few other stations along the way. He was a postdoc in Pittsburgh and then at UBC, and from there we hired him, as I mentioned. Mm -hmm. And so he was an instructor at UVic for about a decade? Yes, about 10 years. Mm -hmm. And he was, I would say he was my friend, and he was a collaborator. We co-supervised several graduate students, Mm-hmm. The last one actually just finished this uh, summer. His name is uh, uh, Tom Thompson, mm-hmm. and he's presently teaching in our department. Mm-hmm. Uh, and what was his area of uh, research, and could you explain it to our listeners? I will try. Yeah. This, this is always a difficult thing in mathematics. He mm-hmm. was active in a specialized area of variational calculus known as optimal transport or mass transportation. Um, it's an area that actually was first, the, the fun, uh, fundamental problem was first formulated by a French mathematician, Gaspard Monge, in 1781. This is one of the remarkable things about mathematics. You can pick up problems that have been around for centuries and develop the theory further. Now, um, Optimal transport was uh, done or developed further by Russian mathematicians in the former Soviet Union in the 1960s, 70s, and 80s. And then it was picked up by the French School of Mathematics. And I think this is how Marshall Agui uh, became involved. He was well connected to many French mathematicians. And I think he was the first, together with a colleague, uh, Nassif Kusup at UBC, who saw how you could use the mass transportation methods, the optimal transport methodology, to prove so-called Sobolev inequalities. Now, so far, probably to most uh, people who listen, this has been gibberish, but um, these inequalities and the metrics that come out of optimal transport find lots of applications in mathematical physics, Mm -hmm. in particular in... um, the equations that uh, describe plasma physics in granular flow equations and in other so-called kinetic equations. And this is where Marshall was very active together with other people, including myself. Mm-hmm. Uh, and do you have any favorite memories sort of working with him on problems like this? Um, yes, usually there were uh, at least three people involved. I mean, the two of us and a student or a visitor, and we would stand at the blackboard and and compare methodology and come up with ideas. And he was uh, always really happy there, I would say. He re- clearly enjoyed and loved what he did. And um, the other fond memories that I have of him are, well, when he was lecturing on the blackboard. I I'm not sure I ever visited one of his classes, but I saw him many times in seminar talks. And he also participated in many conferences that I went to, including some of the ones I organized myself. Mm. Actually, the most recent one was about a year ago in Mexico. And, uh, well, he was very happy to come. As I said, he was uh, also privately, he was a really dear friend. 
Mm-hmm. And in conversations that I've had just with, with friends who knew him, I've heard really universally positive things, which is, I think, rare for a lot of people. Like, what what made him so special? That's um, really uh, an astute observation and very hard to really um, understand completely. But it's true. I don't think I've ever had an argument with him. He was <laughs> always happy. His door in his office was always open a little bit, and you could go in and he would offer you this big smile that uh, was special, I would say. he. I know that he also had these features in his other social interactions. He um, was engaged through the church in many social and other activities. He would play soccer on Saturday mornings, I think. And he would, I'm sure he was a great family. Um, he leaves behind two young children, a daughter, 11 years old, Annie, and a son, John Mark, eight years old. So mm-hmm. it, it's really a tremendous loss to lose him in, in the middle of his life, his career, and his uh, social environment. Mm-hmm. And I understand that there's a, a fund that's been set up to help. Yeah, that's correct. Um, we have set up a fund to assist the family with the financial hardships because there are financial hardships because he was taken really in the middle of his life and career. No, if somebody's listening who would like to contribute it to the contribute to this fund, they should get in touch with the math department for the details. We've set up a bank account to collect. Mm-hmm. Uh, and what kind of impact do you think that he made at UVic in his time here? I think there are a lot of students who will remember him very fondly for his his teaching style. And I think his mathematical legacy is of lasting va- uh, value. He, um, in particular, I think the work that he did on the Sobolev type inequalities and related subjects and the papers that he wrote on kinetic models and equations. He also collaborated with other colleagues in the department, and I'm not so familiar with some of that work. But it's, they all appeared in top-notch journals, and he was internationally very well respected. Mm-hmm. We'll have to leave it there. Dr. Ilner, thanks so much for your time. Thank you very much. Dr. Reinhard Ilner is an emeritus professor in the Math and Stats Department, and a funeral service will be held at 12.10 p.m. on Friday, October 7th at St. Patrick's Church in Victoria. Let's go over some events really quickly. There are two lectures tonight from the fine arts side to choose from, depending on your taste. The first is an Orion lecture featuring former FBI special agent Robert K. Whitman, who specialized in recovering stolen art and property, including paintings by Rembrandt, Goya, Rockwell, and more. He'll be joined by art history alumna and owner of Kilshaw's Auctioneers, Allison Ross. That's happening at 7 p.m. tonight in Bob Wright, room B150. The second lecture features Vivian Smith, a Canadian journalist, author, editor, and current Southern lecturer for the Department of Writing, which is a yearly fellowship for a mid-career journalist to teach a special topic in journalism for the year. Uh, It is about gender in journalism and how women's careers in print are limited because of a gendered culture, and that's happening at 7.30 tonight in room A240 in the Human and Social Development Building. Next week, credit cards, banking, and student loans at the Sub Upper Lounge on October 13th at 11.30 a.m. to 1 p.m. The workshop covers how to figure out the real cost of using credit cards and prepaid cards, how to choose the right bank account for your needs, how to understand your student loan obligations, and all that other fun stuff. Some other UVic headlines. UVic learned that Bruce Partridge, who was the president of the university from 1969 to 1972, had died in August. 
They released a statement on the matter on Thursday, September 29th. Partridge's tenure at UVic was dogged by controversy, due in part to accusations that he got his law degree by correspondence from an unaccredited institution. Partridge presided over a new tenure policy, which saw several popular faculty members leave. He resigned in 1972 and went on to complete a Canadian law degree at UBC. For many at UVic, that's where the story ends, but a blog post from the Canadian Unitarian Council picks it up again. He joined the law offices of Baker and McKenzie as a managing director in Hong Kong. He was also deeply involved in the Unitarian Church, serving as a leader from 92 to 95 and a Canadian Unitarian Council parliamentarian from 04 to 07. Now, if you've been on campus long enough, you might remember the launch of the Let's Get Consensual campaign during new student orientation in 2014, an initiative put on by the UVSS, the Anti-Violence Project, and UVic Student Affairs. It came during a time of increased visibility for instances of sexualized violence on campus. Uh, But while that increased visibility was occurring, the university continued to have a patchwork of policies surrounding reported instances of sexual violence on campus, which many survivors say were complicated, demanded a lot of time and energy to wade through, and ultimately did not provide the relief they were seeking. If you were around earlier this calendar year, you would have seen spray-painted saran wrap, banners, chalk art, all demanding that the university draft a consistent policy on sexualized violence that went beyond treating it as non-academic misconduct. Since then, the B.C. Liberal government surprised many by adopting a private member's bill uh, by Andrew Weaver, giving B.C. universities one year to implement publicly available sexual assault policies. Uh, And that deadline is May 19th, 2017. This April, UVic President Jamie Castles formed the university's working group on sexualized violence programs and policy development. Six months later, they've released an interim report. We've got Miles Sauer, editor-in-chief of the Martlet, and an assistant editor, Jennifer Landry, who wrote an article which will be published this Thursday about the report. Good morning, all. Hi, Hugo. Hi, Hugo. Uh, So, uh, Jennifer, could you give us an overview of what's in that report? Well, it's 35 pages, Hugo, with a bunch of appendixes. So Mm -hmm. for all those students out there who aren't going to take the time to read it... But you should. You should. It's really interesting. And it's actually surprisingly lucid, but that's coming from someone who's like in poli-sci and used to that. So And there's lots of interesting pieces in the appendixes. There's imagery. It's great. It's really well done. Um, But the gist of the report is basically outlining that the working group has, since May, been meeting repeatedly and doing a large extent of consultations with various groups across campus, individuals, deans, associate deans, etc. And they've come up with, thus far, they're really focusing on a three-stage process for the sexualized violence policy, which is going to start with education and prevention, um, support for survivors, and then uh, further investigation and adjudication process. Um, the main component that they've really tried to stress, to me at least, is that education and prevention is key. Um, and that is going to also be done in a three-stage process. A pre-arrival process where students will have to see either online um, a video, an interactive piece, some sort of document outlining UVic's policies, our values, what it means to be a UVic student on campus. The second stage is going to be during orientation um, with a bunch of workshops already being held by the U of SS and Anti-Violence Project, but the policy will really be implemented then as well. And then the third stage is ongoing education. And so a huge part of this um, interim report also relies on the suggestion to hire a coordinator who will be able to 
um, really broadcast these messages across campus, ensure the ongoing education, but also tailor it for all of the various groups across campus. We have a very diverse campus community, and the the coordinator really needs to communicate um, to a variety of people, and that's what they really were stressing in the interim report. Mm -hmm. And uh, have you heard anything about them trying to bring all kinds of disparate policies that are currently in place sort of in line with each other? Because that was one of the things that was mentioned in the report. It is pretty difficult from what I can see because there already are a lot of policies and groups on campus who are already doing a lot of work, such as the Anti-Violence Project and the Sexualized Violence Task Force. They provide a lot of support for survivors and a lot of information as well. So it's been very tricky as far as I can see from those I interviewed, which was um, Annalie Lepp, the chair of the Group and Gender Studies Department, Emma Kanakin, uh, Director of Student Affairs at UVSS, and Kenya Rogers, who is the policy analysis for the Anti-Violence Project. Mm-hmm. Uh, any word on sort of, because I know that there were instances sort of early in the year uh, when uh, people had said that they were living in residence and they had um, attackers who were living sort of in very close quarters with them and they were having trouble leaving or getting them to leave. Uh, any word sort of on, on that? Um, they definitely said that right now without a policy in place, there's lots of miscommunication and confusion around how to handle sexualized violence and that what they're really fo- focusing on is creating pathways that'll make this um, trying process a lot clearer, um, giving people information where they can find support, the different pathways that they could take. But it's very survivor-centric, so it really does rely, um, as far as they're working on right now, to focus entirely on what the survivor needs and wants. Mm-hmm. And what's the reaction been from the, the players involved, at least that you can tell? A lot of it seems they're very hopeful. They're doing good work. There's still lots to be done. Um, but they seem to be quite happy with the interim report, and they're very interested in hearing from students. Consultations will go until mid-November. There are two ways to have a consultation. You can request in person and meet with the working group. That can be for an individual or a group. Um, Or you can do the online consultation, which is on their website, and you can just answer the consultation questions on a very user-friendly forum. Mm -hmm. And... uh Miles, in, in comments on previous Martlet articles, there's sort of been some disagreement on whether or not it's the place of the university to handle what they believe is a is a criminal matter. Uh, how have activists on the other side like responded to that? Does the report have anything to say on, on that? Um, I remember Cormac O'Brien mentioned to me that there were a few choice comments made on like the UVic subreddit, for example, but people are always kind of um, getting rattled over there. Uh, I'm not sure. I think there will always be those people who say that, um, but I think... Uh, folks who look at situations like this and say, oh, it's a criminal matter, it shouldn't be handled by the university, I think are missing the point and not understanding that a university is a space where you are supposed to feel safe, for lack of a better word. Mm-hmm. And one of the things that surprised me when I read the report was sort of its its scope. It included a lot about dialogue over the past year regarding power relationships, intersections on race, but also included suggestions, for instance, that a policy should be translated into other languages for international students, or that uh, Let's Get Consensual, like that campaign existed for September, uh, but not really for January. That was very student-centric and not uh, aimed at staff. Uh, was there anything surprising that you learned from it? 
Um, one of the things that Annalie Lapp really stressed to me is that it's not just student-focused. It's going to mm-hmm. include faculty, staff, and visitors, which actually goes beyond what the BC legislation um, mandated. So UVic's policy is going to be very encompassing all of the campus community. And she also stressed that a lot of issues with sexualized violence stem from colonial violence, racism, homophobia, transphobia, ageism, classism, and there mm-hmm. are lots of different aspects to consider, as well as groups who already have a lot of support, such as international students, indigenous students, students with disabilities, and it's very um, complicated to create and draft a policy that encompasses all of that campus community. Mm-hmm. Uh, we don't have a lot of time left, but Miles, uh, could you go over a little bit about what happened at the board meeting last night? Um, honestly, I'm thinking about it, and like it was a pretty low-key meeting. There was a presentation huh. from the University Christian Ministries that was uh, um, mandated, I guess, like at the last board meeting. Mm-hmm. And so a few members of that came in and just kind of explained, you know, whatever the concerns are related to our group, um, we apologize that somebody felt that way and they just kind of made it clear that the club is very much welcoming and inviting to people of all identities uh genders etc etc and um the individual who originally like raised the concerns at the last board meeting actually wasn't in attendance to kind of speak back to that and Mm -hmm. so i i mean i don't want to say it was disappointing but it kind of seemed like anticlimactic in a way where the people who really had you with the club weren't there to actually speak to it properly face-to-face. Mm-hmm. Uh, Miles uh, and Jennifer, we're going to have to leave it there. Thanks so much for joining us today. Thank you. Thank you. Jennifer Landry is an editorial assistant at the Martlet, and Miles Sauer is the editor-in-chief. And that concludes another episode of You in the Ring. As always, if you have a story tip, email us at spokenword at cfuv.ca. I'd like to thank our contributor, Miyoko Kobe, for the segment on food. The show is produced by Liz MacArthur, without whom the show would be an empty husk devoid of all meaning. I'm your host, Hugo Wong. We'll be back next week from 10 to 11. Stay tuned for Artscape with Katie Sage and Harold Jazzy, where they explore the underground art scene in Victoria. I'm going to leave you with a song by Kai Plant called Running, and they'll be playing uh, uh, on Lucky at Lucky on Saturday night. Have a good Tuesday.